We are live. Welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today, we have Mark McLaughlin. Welcome, Mark. Hey, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for coming on. I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and I know you post a lot of good information on there around conditioning or endurance exercise. And I think it'll be perfect to bring you on the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast, even though it's geared towards combat sports. But I'd like to bring on a lot of different uh, coaches from different areas here. We've had many debates on here around, I guess, various conditioning modalities. A lot of people fall into uh, the idea of performing low intensity conditioning to build that base, higher intensity to almost peak. We've had recently Andrew Usher on and Dr. John Babright talking about a pure high intensity training approach, which is very interesting. I quite enjoy the, I guess, going against the grain of what we have here. So it would be perfect to have you on to talk low intensity training. Sure. Maybe, maybe provide a brief background about yourself, Mark, and just so listeners can understand where you come from. Yeah, yeah. So I started in the performance field back in 1997. Um, and the reason I got into it was there was a lot of um, catastrophic injuries and in young athletes that I was seeing, you know, reading about it in the newspaper. Um, like this one uh, cross country runner broke a femur in the last like 200 meters of the race. Oh my gosh. And I mean, and it was, and all the catastrophic injuries were in track and field. And so growing up in sports and everything, like the worst injury I ever had was a, you know, like a sprained ankle. And so I thought, man, there's got to be a better way for these kids to train and reach their potential. So I just started educating myself. I was, I think, 35, 36 at the time, had a job that actually paid me money. Uh, and just started researching, applying to myself. And then I applied it at the high school I went to for three years. That was kind of my internship, I guess, for lack of a better term. And then I opened my own training facility in 2003. And that kind of marked the start of the journey with technology, with, you know, aerobic training, with, you know, looking at training more from a biological standpoint, physiological adaptations versus biomechanical and, and all that. Um, and then fast forward to today where I, you know, work for Lake Oswego School District where I oversee you know the training of of all the uh, of all the sports within the within the district from middle school all the way up to high school. Nice, perfect. Let, let's jump straight into our conditioning topic, and I think you, obviously you mentioned their physiology around the conditioning side. So maybe let's start there. What kind of what kind of adaptations are we looking to, I guess, elicit or induce? through low intensity conditioning and maybe we can start there with defining what low intensity conditioning even is yeah yeah so kind of the way that i look at it and was taught was you know like you know what is your you know what are your principles and you know methodologies and you know what is your you know mission statement for the training for lack of a better term and so you know, with that, like mine is, you know, to develop the, you know, largest bank of biological power for the athlete where they can perform their sport at the highest level, both in practice and in games or matches without, you know, running fatigue. And so then based off of that, then you need to take, okay, where is the Kind of the gold standard from a conditioning standpoint for the sport you know what are those markers is it you know blood lactate is it you know is it resting heart rate i mean there's a lot of different ways to quantify that so you know what are your key indicators on conditioning fitness and then you need to test the athlete you know based on those parameters and then how that fits into their sport and then begin to develop a program based off of that. Um, so, you know, with, with the population say of, of fighters, like, okay, you know, what, how, how are you testing as an athlete and what do you need more of? And so then if it's a low conditioning, you know, low level conditioning, Okay, then we need to establish, you know, what that means to you. Um, so are you using heart rate? Are you using percentage of max heart rate? Are you using, 
say SMO2, you know, to to monitor, you know, uh, oxygen levels at the working muscle, or whatever. Because um, I think a lot of people just train blindly. Like, okay, I need a lot of low level conditioning. Okay. Where are you at? What's the intensity? How long? You know, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of people will use well, what's most accessible is just simple heart rate. Oh, I think uh, we may have lost Mark there. Right. Oh, we've got you back. Yeah, we got you back. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so I was just saying that uh, I think most people, out of simplicity and ease of, I guess, accessibility, would would use heart rate just because it's quite easy just to slap on a heart rate monitor and kind of just. Mm -hmm. there. I think that's where most people find it. So, what would you? Is there a threshold? Because obviously, within, I mean, a lot of people went off Joel Jamison's, I guess, ultimate MMA condition. That seems that was almost the bible. I guess within combat sports, within many other team sports as well, and it was often uh given just a very simple blank okay 120 to 150 beats per minute that's considered low intensity just don't go above that obviously that differs person to person all sorts of things uh i guess play into that so is there a typical threshold within heart rate that someone could use or is it a matter of having two tests to see where that is no i mean like I mean, I think that's a good place to start just because a lot of people may not have access to, you know, other technology and heart rate is easy to, to use and manage. I mean, if you look at the, the literature from, you know, the best endurance athletes in the world, especially runners, runners, I mean, uh, cyclists, whatever, you know, typically the low level is like anywhere from 45% of max heart rate all the way up to like 72%. Okay. And if you look at people that don't have a big base of endurance training, like they should tend to be more towards that lower end to the point where, you know, walking for some is probably a very good point to start at. Uh, because then you can accumulate a lot of volume at you know very low stress levels and begin to build that base I, and people also that aren't used to running you know say like you have your heavier athlete or whatever there's no way they're going to be able to stay in that in that low zone so then you start drifting out of it and the adaptation that you're looking for whether it be from a peripheral standpoint, you know, a, a cardiac standpoint, autonomic nervous system, you're just not getting it because the heart rates are too high. Gotcha. So I always tend easier, like talking right now, if you and I are, that's the place that you should be going. Gotcha. And, and what, what are these adaptations that I guess you're trying to achieve to this low intensity to essentially transfer to, uh, I guess your your competition performance. So you mentioned obviously the central and the peripheral adaptations. What are what are you trying to achieve specifically with the low intensity? Yeah, so you know, there's the hard rate to kind of guide the training. And then, you know, when you work it back to say heart rate variability, you know, from like from a cardiac system standpoint, like we want a moderate parasympathetic response. Meaning, you know, you don't want to be in a fight or flight state with your easy training. So people that I read about on, on Twitter and other forums, they talk about conditioning as in, okay, run, you know, at these intensities, but they don't factor in how, what that's doing to our autonomic nervous system. So if you're running easy all the time, it's a very easy session to recover from. So then you start building this big base of easy stuff. So when the when your key sessions come up, you know, you build a good aerobic base to recover in between bouts to say intervals. Mm -hmm. If you're doing, you know, a high level for back lack of a better term, that in between rest day when you're doing your easy aerobic is allowing you to recover for that next high intensity day. It gives you, you know, great sleep. So if you're going all this easy stuff, you're building volume, sleep quality goes up. 
sleep quality goes up, quality sessions go up. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, if you're looking at the aerobic as a center of, say, a bike hub, all this stuff is going outside of it, you know, giving you and building these batteries to just allow you to perform at a higher level. Gotcha. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the high-low approach, just training in general to maximize outputs on those high days and, and be able to recover on those on those lower days too. But I guess one of the questions surrounding, I guess, low-intensity training within intermittent sports as well, or in sports mm-hmm. typically have a lot of, I guess, technical training. And this might be, a, I guess, a loaded question, a harder one to answer, but at what point is the sports training enough? Because a lot of sports technical training is it will be counted as a low intensity stimulus depending on what it is. Is there mm-hmm. something like, okay? Do I need to add more on top of that, or do I need to start touching on intensities maybe they're not getting within their sports training? It might be a bit of a hard one to ask because it's a bit more general and kind of yeah situational. Yeah, so I think people get the wrong impression about. And I don't know why, you know, I become the aerobic guy and, you know, on the internet, that's, that's whatever. Um, but, you know, the aerobic, you know, holds that base, it builds that base. And then, you know, how you sprinkle in, you know, that higher intensity work, um, you know, to negate it is totally wrong. To go to the extreme of say you know eighty uh, percent high intensity, twenty percent low intensity. I mean, is that you know a good way to do it too? So, um, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. So I have, and again, this isn't really an intermittent sport, but I have a special operations uh, person I'm, I'm working with right now, um, and you know we do like last week he got. 13 hours of training, like 12 hours of that was like low intensity, but then we have like 30 minutes of like threshold work. And then we have like another 20 minutes total throughout the week of very high intensity work. Mm. Um, and for him, and then I can see on his, uh, his heart rate uh, HRV for training that he keeps adapting to the stimulus. And so, Andy's getting stronger. Like he did a, you know, four, four eighty-five, you know, deadlift the other day. Um, so it's not that you negate it. You just have to understand the mixture. And some people are not chefs, right? They're just they want to go by the recipe. You know, they want a cookie cutter approach. Um, but you know, you may only be able to handle one high-intensity session a week. Gotcha. I may be and a two. I may need, you know, four days in between those two. You know, but through the training process, you want to build yourself up to handle more of that, you know, high-intensity work. But that's why I think some people just go way too hard. They just can't recover. They think they're out of shape. They go harder. They're even going, you know, so then it just becomes a spiral and then you get the wrong adaptation, you're overtrained and you, you know, perform like shit. So before getting back to the podcast, I want to let you know, there's a link down in the description for the sweet Arts of fighting underground community. You can get all the help you need for your combat sports training. You get every single sweet Arts of fighting training program, online course, and you get access to a range of coaches within the private discord community. So go check that out and back to the podcast. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of combat athletes end up in a, in a space where <clears throat> every session is trying to go as hard as possible. So even if they are doing some technical stuff, at the end of the session, they might do hard rolls, hard sparring, that kind of thing, and go as hard as possible. So every session kind of looks the same. And they're getting the same stimulus over and over again, and it becomes harder to recover from. Yeah, and then it becomes, you know, the training monotony. Mm. Uh, you know, there's... I mean, there's so much that we don't know about human, you know, human performance. And so, you know, trying to get people out of these ruts, you know, understanding from a physiological standpoint, from a very easy tool to manage heart rate variability. Okay, are we in a rut? Do we need to get out of it? So it's this constant stimulus 
assess, you reassess, new training plan, stimulus. So it's just this constant circle of adapting, you know, to, you know, how, because then a lot of these people have other jobs too, right? Yep. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, you, you probably do have pro fighters that, you know, that you talk to and work with, but that's separate. But the majority of people have a full-time job as well. So you start stacking that stuff on and they have kids and lack of sleep. And so. Mm, no, for sure. That, and the other thing is regarding, I guess, easy field tests for people to use. Do you have anything that you like to use for people to be able to assess themselves? Um, you know, assess essentially their conditioning without having to go to a lab and, and do a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a couple of good tests. You know, I think the uh, the thirty fifteen, which is a sub maximal running test, for, which was designed by Martin Boucher out of uh, I think he's in France now. Um, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, you could do you know a, a Cooper test. Um, you know, here uh, for football, you know, has the uh, the tribe test. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you could run a, you know, you could run a mile set out or, you know, a three mile, you know, are there specific testing within the fighting realm that, you know, that are, that are um, kind of standardized across the board that they look at, you know, that you could apply as well. So, and then also, like, how do you respond in training? Like, you know, you do a hard interval. Okay, is it taking you three minutes, four minutes? Is it a one minute recovery? Um, can you even do their heart rate up there? You know, maybe you're so overtrained right now that, you know, even trying to get to, you know, a, a high heart rate is extremely difficult. So understanding then how to back it down. Yeah. But they need to be repeatable and they need to be standardized enough to where if you were in another country and you had to do a test, you could go out and do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's easy things, I guess you can be on a bike or a rower, do a simple maximal aerobic speed test, like you mentioned yeah. there with yeah. a mile or five, six minutes, and at least just having something like that can give you even just a general baseline. Just to Right. And I think where people get stuck on the testing is, okay, what am I going to do with it now? Yeah. Especially if you're self-coached. So... You know, I think the hardest thing for athletes that are self-coached is they always think they need to do more. Mm -hmm. And so can they get into a mindset through these testing? I mean, and you can do daily readiness tests too, also from like a neuromuscular standpoint, like a jump or a vertical jump. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, my, especially when I looked at the Omega Wave and then I had it in the training facility, like the neuromuscular system like took the longest for even our top athletes to recover from. So, you know, we were using a different, you know, different battery of tests, you know, each day to determine, you know, loading intensity. So, you know, we can back it down and with the self-trained athlete, having these simple tests that you can do, but then understanding what they mean to you in that context and then how to adjust your training accordingly. Did you, so you, did you find, um, I was going to say, did you find like your more maybe explosive style athletes took longer to recover versus maybe the more workhorse kind of work capacity style athletes? Yeah. And yes. And then later on, once they got like a higher, you know, aerobic base, they were able to have higher outputs more often. So, you know, their, their continuity of training was much better. And so, you know, that's the other thing, like, okay, if you can only establish one high intensity session, okay, how can we get, you know, some more quality in there? And so the trick with some of these guys was you just need more easy work. Hmm. Okay. And then we talked about how a lot of, athletes or fighters, you know, might be working full time, families, training on top of that. Some people might not have the time to dedicate to volume, to be able to go out and do extra, I guess, easiest easy sessions, because you know, a lot of technical sessions, they maybe have to fit in some other things. Is there a way someone can almost micro dose these 
these lower intensity sessions or sure. I don't know, find other ways to get them in? Yeah, no, I mean, and that's a great question. I think, I think walking and just moving, like, you know, trying to accumulate as much as have many steps throughout the day as possible. Um, you know, even going for like a five or 10 minute run every day at such a low intensity that you don't even break a sweat. Um, so then if you do then begin to train again, and then running is one of the modalities, like your musculoskeletal system has been doing this. So you're, you know, somewhat ready. And I think, I think walking, accumulating volume, cause it's easy. You know, get up, moving from your desk, just as much moving as you can do. That's, you know, and you have 16 hours to try to get, you know, as much easy work as you can get in. So, yeah. Okay. And then regarding the, the time for, say, your low intensity sessions, you mentioned obviously you can do maybe five to 10 minutes um, every day, but is there like a minimum? I guess threshold that someone should hit doing their low intensity work for adaptations to start like, happening. Because you could do five to ten minutes every day over the week. There might be seventy minutes total, but at some mm -hmm. point you've got to increase that volume. So is there is there a threshold that that you like someone to hit? No, oh, man. I mean, with yeah, it's a very general question because it's no, no. situation dependent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's it's actually a good question because this is kind of real world stuff here. Is there a minimum dose, Scott? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a study saying, you know, you, what, uh, you know, 150 minutes is what they advocate for kids. I think a week. Um, you know, that's two hours and what 30 minutes. You know, if you're a fighter, you know, can you get that minimum dose throughout the week? You know, that's a great place to start. Mm. Uh, plus, the, plus the technical training on top of it, I guess, would, would top it up if you're training. Multiple yeah. Times a week. yeah. Yeah. You know, as long as at certain times that stuff is, you know, relatively low intensity. Um, and, you know, I think people would be very surprised even on some of that technical work. Like, you know, how really low intensity is it for some, you know, athletes? Um, yeah. So that's why the technical skills suffer because fatigue is so high because of the lack of a base. And so these athletes can't get, you know, don't see the improvements that they want to. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure. And maybe... Uh, just coming back to the, I guess the adaptations, physio physiological adaptations with the mm -hmm. stuff. So mm -hmm. a lot of the a lot of the idea around the low intensity work is okay. We're we're getting eccentric hypertrophy of that left ventricle. Do we maybe dive into a little bit of some of that? Um, I guess the high intensity versus low intensity regarding some of these heart adaptations and what what we're really trying to achieve there. Yeah. So you know, on the low intensity work, you know, for the you know, hypertrophy of the left ventricle, that's what, you know, the, the intensities need to be low enough to where, you know, that chamber gets filled up with, you know, high volumes. So that's why the lower the intensity, the better, because the volume of blood that goes in there, it stretches it. And I mean, I have guys now that we were running on heart rate based, you know, two or three years ago, we switched to Monty and their low intensity work went from say like 110 to 115 beats per minute to now they're like 85 to 95 beats per minute. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's why that low intensity, that zone zero, the walking and all that stuff is going to give you, you know, those, that easy work to get that stretching uh concept there on the flip side you know the high intensity work is going to make it stronger obviously i mean you know the heart is a muscle so you know you, you need some of that you know max work to you know develop the strength of it and that's why most sports require a balance so you need the low intensity work on top of the high intensity work um 
And then from there, then you start working on, you know, the muscular adaptations of oxidative capacity. Um, and then also with the, with the bigger chamber size, lower intensities, again, it, it's going to affect that parasympathetic nervous system just to, to give you so many benefits on, you know, sleep, relaxation, re re recovery, better digestion of food and, and so on. Um, and if you're in that middle zone too often, so you're going too hard to develop the cardiac system, but too easy, to, you know, to get the right adaptation of the hard with the hard work, that's what exhausts you. And then you become more sympathetic dominant, and then you just, you're forced to rest because you can't, you can't reach what you need to. Yeah, I mean, it's a big issue in most sports. People sitting in that middle intensity, they spend their technical training in that low middle intensity. Then when they go to do the extra conditioning, they may be doing like hard circuits for 15, 30 minutes or whatever. And they just stay in that exact same zone over and over. And they never hit that low. They never hit that really hard work. And they, as you mentioned, yeah, they just get stuck in that middle doing the same thing, exhausting themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I think... You know, in sports, you know, so, you know, if you're looking at, I mean, just watching, you know, MMA and, and different grappling sports, like, you know, there are these, you know, extreme bursts of activity, right? It, it's very explosive. Um, but then, you know, you'll, you know, be down on the ground and then it becomes, you know, very technical. So the bigger base you have, the better time, the better you can recover from those harder bouts you're just going to give yourself a better advantage to display your technical skill at the highest level. Mm, no, for sure. It's interesting as well. I mean, depending, I guess it depends how we look at, look at the aerobic base or aerobic energy system. But if you're looking at the classic VO2, VO2 max, we know, I guess within marathon performance, you know, running economy is the thing that kind of relates well to marathon performance where vo2 max doesn't seem to relate so well to marathon performance at least among populations with similar um times there but i guess within even with in combat sports or even any any intimate sport really how much emphasis do you place on specifically trying to develop say that number that vo2 max number is that something you're looking to to build through specific training are you trying to spend a lot of time at vo2 max within the conditioning no, no, because if you look at intermittent sports, um, you know, let's say like American football or, or soccer, you know, rugby, basketball. So, you know, American football, it's very, you know, elastic, less than five seconds. It's all about speed and anaerobic threshold. So it's really, you know, driving up that ceiling of how often can you repeat that speed without the drop off of fatigue. And so it's more, it's either aerobic or, you know, anaerobic, a, a lactic. So the development of that is just totally different and you don't need to improve the VO2 max. My thing is how can we improve the recovery between those bouts? Mm -hmm. Then that becomes, it's cardiac driven, it's parasympathetic, it's oxidative capacity of both slow and fast twitch fiber. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you go to, say, a basketball player, so they need a combination of everything. So anaerobic, anaerobic uh, lactate, you know, aerobic. So development for them, like, you know, getting their heart rates, you know, to a higher rate for longer periods of time as they get closer to the season is a good thing to do. But you need to have that base of that aerobic work for them to be able to do that session and recover to where they can come back a day or two later and repeat it. And this is why looking at the hormonal system, the, you know, the endocrine system to develop that through specific training. So, man, you're just this huge biological engine that can withstand super high intensity, it's going to be painful. That's, I mean, there's no doubt about that, but hopefully I can recover in 30 seconds where it takes you a minute and a half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's why, 
you know, training for each sport is just so totally different, um, you know, based on the profile. Yeah. Gotcha. And you mentioned obviously the oxidative potential of, of the muscle. Is there any specific type of conditioning you're doing to elicit those adaptations? Is low intensity training, is that going to give someone some of that benefit there or is it exclusively a high intensity training adaptation that you're that you're pulling for that no so so like on the oxidative capacity of the um slow fiber you know we'll do like a like a tempo squat oxidative squat where Mm -hmm. you know you're two seconds down two seconds up and you're never relaxing the muscle um you know so there's that constant tension that's um uh there um so that's what we use for both the upper and the lower body um and with our with a lot of our offensive linemen for football like a lot of different pressing movements because you know there's so much punching involved at that position that the higher oxidative capacity of that upper body just the longer they're going to be able to sustain their skill um so, like when I was training Navy SEALs for buds, we would do a lot of that. Plus, we did a lot of upper body roller skiing, um, pressing up above, ISO holds. So, when you look at the demands of what they need to go through, okay, and then how can you, and it's not a specific, sports specific, it's more of a general specific adaptation that you're trying to achieve. Um, Oxidative capacity for fast twitch is like totally different. Like it's 100% effort, short bouts, so hill sprints, um, you know, different types of push ups, box jumps, things of that nature. But you can't go above anaerobic threshold or, you know, it's not aerobic in in nature. Um, And then for the super high intensity, high threshold movements, then you go to you know, 80 to 90% of your max, say on the squat for seven to 10 sets to total failure. And yeah, yeah. But there's certain markers that I look for physiologically that if you don't have them in place, the the training uh, benefit won't be there for you. You just won't be able to recover from it. Wait, explain that squat squat one for me. So what was it? It was eighty to ninety something percent for seven to ten yeah. sets to, fail, to failure. Yeah, seven to ten sets to failure. So, so you'd be ripping out like anywhere from three to five, or maybe even seven reps, kind of thing. Did you know you can represent sweet arts of fighting while you're training with more than just a membership? We also have rash guards and shorts. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see that we have the sweet arts of fighting two point shorts and we also have the sweet size of fighting short and long sleeve rash guard there is another design coming soon but you can get those on xmarshall.com and you can go down the description and you can find that and back to the podcast yeah, a friend of mine uh, had one of his athletes do it this is several years ago on the first set he got uh, this is a 315 i think he got 23 reps oh my gosh okay <laughs> Um, and then, uh, and I forget how it went from there, but, you know, I think at the end of it, he was, he was crying. Um, I think it took him like two months to recover, but, um, but again, man, there's a lot of different ways to, you know, give yourself a a good hormonal spike without it. You know, you know, the, the, the lift itself isn't the issue. It's how and when you apply it. So maybe a lot of different ways to apply that type of work. So, okay, it's interesting because I, I, yeah, I've never heard of that. Uh, I guess doing doing it that way, which is really interesting. But so, what do you, what what, are the, what is it you're trying to get out of that exactly? Was that for the oxidative capacity of the fast switch fibers? That one. No, so that's that's purely for, for the glycolytic fibers, and then also for the because the stress response is so huge, so big yeah. that uh, you know the endocrine system. So, you know, building that up um, and, you know, you'd run that for probably two to three weeks and then unload for a week and then maybe 
two or three more weeks of that and then, you know, get out of it and allow those systems to recover. Yeah. So it's, and I think maybe I've had, I don't know, 10 or 11 athletes kind of get to that point where they were able to do that. Mm-hmm. But it takes, it takes a, a big training base before you, you throw that on someone. Yeah. And, you know, mentally, are you going to be okay with it? <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. Come, the anxiety coming into training, having to do something like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, as, uh, I guess along the lines of intermittent sports. So, obviously, we've talked a lot of uh, team sports, intermittent sports, obviously, um, combat sports. I like to think of it as, as basically rugby with other parts <laughs> other parts of training. Right, there. Right. Um, it's, they're very similar. So... The idea around repeated sprints ability. So we know, you know, some kind of robot base will help you recover between sprints, which is good, but you need to have mm-hmm. the power output to be able to sprint fast or have those explosive efforts. But then we also have repeated high intensity efforts that might not be running based. Um, and there's some good, a good little paper that um, showing that when you add, for example, with rugby players, when you add some kind of tackle or grappling element to the drill, the aerobic, I guess, fitness doesn't correlate as well as when it's just pure sprinting which i thought was quite interesting but i guess the, the question is there is there is there some kind of difference when it's not a purely running based or purely sprint based sport is there some kind of difference uh, i guess within your programming or conditioning philosophy and modalities that would change within that i don't know it's a very general question i don't know if i framed it well but um hopefully you get what i mean there yeah yeah um, so, you know, I've, I've had the moxie on some of my athletes, uh, you know, football players, like that are also doing grappling within our training. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's quite, so let me actually, let me back up here. Do you know, grab, you know, a lot of grabbing and so the moxie I had it on the, the right, uh, the right quad. So it, it's not on the dominant, like grappling muscles. Um, but, but even, even then you can see quite a marked, um, physiological response, even with that, even at a, with, with a non-involved muscle. Mm. And I don't know, is it because they're, you know, because they're young kids, but you know, they're not a lead level. So it's just that, you know, Lack of cleaning, causing those huge, you know, deficits in in oxygen. Um, so, what I would do then, you know, based off of that, and even if I didn't have a moxie, is how long do those grappling maneuvers typically last? Mm-hmm. And maybe you could answer that. Is it? Yeah, it's usually like. Well, within within the very scarce research out, it's like a six to one work to rest ratio. Um, I can actually pull it up. Let's see, but it's uh, it's like one hundred and seventeen seconds or something of work around there. If that makes sense. Okay, so like, so like two minutes, two and a half minutes or something like that. Yeah, we could we could even just say two minutes just to make it easy. Okay, cool. Um, so then I mean that's a that's a totally different um energy requirement right like you're you know there's a little bit of aerobic there but you know mostly it's kind of in that you know lactic you know power capacity and i'll actually send you a a chart that i have on on training those those different energy systems um so so then you get into okay if you're doing that type of training and that's how long those bouts last okay now you need to look at is my rest? So you said it's like a six to one work to rest ratio. Yeah, for for jujitsu, that that that's for, based on the basically the only real paper that that's been yeah, done on yeah. it. So, so then, you know, how like are you practicing that way? So you know, are you getting on the ground and grappling for two and a half minutes, then taking a rest based off of that six to one ratio, and then doing it again? Mm-hmm. And then when does your performance, and again, it would have to be subjective, right? So subjectively, when does your performance begin to drop? Yeah. And then should you rest, say, five to ten minutes, easy spinning, 
maybe some very easy technical shadow stuff like that, and then come back and do some more bouts of that. Mm -hmm. So the quality is like, you know, extremely high. And then as you get closer to your mat, you know, your mat, then you begin to cut the rest down even, you know, so then it becomes more specific, more sport specific, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So you have to build, you have to have some type of base within that output range to begin to get used to it. Yeah. I think it's interesting as well, because a lot, obviously a lot of the research, they give these numbers, but this is like the average that they might right. see within that, within that specific thing. So obviously you've got, you know, a range outside of that. So how, instead of, how do you then, how would you develop something that doesn't just stick to the averages? Because you probably want people to, okay, you're going to have periods where you might have to go longer. You're going to have periods where you might have to go shorter, but more intense. So instead of just being like, okay, I'm going to do, for example, uh, boxing, let's just say three, three, three minute rounds. Okay, they're going to do three minute rounds in training because they have three minute rounds in a fight. But at some point, you're going to have to potentially break that down some way because you're going to need more intense periods within that, or maybe extend those periods depending. Is there is there a certain? Oh, I mean, it's, again, really genuine yeah. question, but you know, is, is there some kind of framework someone could use? So, so that's you're going three by three by three minute rounds. Um, so let's say at the beginning you're just doing those rounds kind of based off of you know normal intensity um so you know so you, you build a base of three by three minutes basically and do you do that for two weeks four weeks i don't know i would you know let's say i'm doing that twice a week okay how is james recovering through variability through the you know subjective questionnaires and then just your overall feeling of training so then you know you kind of build that base throughout let's say four weeks and the adaptations are good you're recovering okay now we go to okay man we're going to go we're going to start with 30 seconds uh we're going to go three by 30 second rounds and that 30 seconds is super high intensity with a Two to one, three to one ratio of rest. Mm -hmm. so, the, so those three by thirty seconds are very high quality, mm -hmm. and that would be the first session. And then, okay, how do you look the next day on a recovery standpoint? Because it'd be it's always easier to start at the lowest common denominator, and then work forward slowly versus. Okay, now we're going to go three by three minute, just high intensity rounds, and you're you know crushed for yeah. a week or two, um, and then you know the feet, you know, and you know giving training prescriptions for me is hard just because I'm I'm asking so many questions, but then yeah. like giving feedback from you, like okay, what did you think of that? Have you ever done that before? Um, you know, what are the hard parts for you during a round? You know, the, you know, the first, say, 15 seconds of high intensity, you're gas, but then as you start warming up, you know, you're better. So there's a prescription, but then there's always this, you know, subjective info coming back from, you know, the, the athlete. And if you're training somebody in person, then you can see their body language through these 30-second bouts, like, hey, man, he's... Ball buster here in the first 30, second 30, man, he's great. Oh shit, 30s. <laughs> okay, so then maybe the next session you just go two of those 30 second bouts. Mm. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, no that's all good. It, it's just, it's so, so I guess people in the audience, a lot of them, you know, might be doing their own training just, just to give them some ideas around how they can look to implement and structure this kind of themselves. That's mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of the, the framework I'm, I'm trying to, to get these questions out just, just for that. Um, yeah, no. There. So, yeah, it's, um, no, it's good. It's good because I think a lot of people get caught, you know, okay, it's three three-minute rounds. I think what's interesting you said that, okay, we're going to do three 30-second rounds, whereas a lot of people might be like, okay, I'm going to do six 30-second rounds to make it three minutes and then times that by three. 
and end up doing 18 30 second rounds the first time and then cook themselves you know like i'm sure a lot of people will do that because i want to make sure i hit that same time versus scaling it right back when you start the intensity to then build from there right right and that's where all the other outside stuff comes into play so you know maybe i had a three by 30 scheduled for you you train at the end of the day you've had a hard day at work i mean so you come into that session and you're just, you know, you're just totally gassed, but hey, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and, and so, like, I think the more people can learn to stand down sometimes, as opposed to giving themselves more harder all the time, I think they would, I think, and everybody, I just think they'd be better off. Yeah, yeah for sure. I, I've got, I think, one last question for you for this. And it's around, I guess, we can talk about competing adaptations so typically i think it's more prevalent within conditioning generally where people almost split the low intensity and the high intensity into i guess separate training cycles or separate blocks because as we mentioned before we talk about the high intensity okay you're going to get these hard adaptations the low intensity you're going to get these hard adaptations they kind of uh i guess interfere with each other so how does that play any role within how you plan your conditioning as as a training week or even a training day, does that not matter if, if it's a low intensity day or if it's a certain day, you might have some high intensity and low intensity within that day because that's just what you need to do or are you trying to split these as far apart as much as possible? No, so all those qualities are in the training week all the time. It's just, you know, how am I kind of managing the percentages, you know, um, so... Like with, um, you know, somebody would say it's a high intensity day, you know, after the warm up, I may have them do like uh, some threshold work, say three or four reps of like five minutes. Uh, and then they would, you know, cool down, come in and do a weight session. And they could do it right after, or they could do it in the, in the evening where we're going to do like heavy deadlift or heavy squat, low reps, but you know, high intensity. Um, and then, you know, at the end of that session, I may have oxidative work. So I'm encompassing, you know, these three, these three things on, on one day. And then the next day is always a recovery or even after the session, you know, the recovery begins. So, you know, the next day could be super low intensity of a walk or a hike. Yeah. Um, Wednesday, okay, how are you feeling? Neuromuscular, I'm pretty good, cardiac's good. Okay, then we're gonna do a different high intensity session with, you know, 10 second sprints, say six of them with like a four minute rest in between each. And then we're gonna do some elastic work on say some plyometrics or something. Um, and then Thursday again with another low intensity day. And then Friday is more of a stimulative session from Monday's work. So I say it's half the volume of that Monday session. Um, and I may have some hill sprints in there or something else at the beginning, but starting off with some, you know, high intensity um, aerobic conditioning work. Um, and then they all get the weekend off. So it's something I went to probably a year and a half ago after uh, listening to Nils Vanderpool, who's a world champion or uh, Olympic uh, and world record holder in the five and 10K speed skating. So then people have, you know, normal lives and, you know, it kind of stays in a flow. And then they know that, hey man, Monday's coming and I can, you know, really get after it. So, uh, and then, yeah, and that's how yeah, they do adjust and keep going nice I, I do have one more question for you actually and that's around the idea of high intensity you can still make aerobic adaptations through high intensity or even sprint interval training so i just want to hear i guess your side and your argument for you know why why shouldn't someone just do say high intensity training to improve i mean if you do the same thing it caps out pretty quickly in terms of aerobic adaptations when you're doing a sprint interval stuff. But I guess your your take on why someone couldn't just do their high intensity training through the week, their two, maybe two or three sessions, and then just not worry about 
specific low intensity conditioning when they're still getting some aerobic adaptations from the higher intensity stuff? Sure. So number one is most of the athlete or you know these these athletes that we're talking about are you know guy you know other people that have jobs and are not full time athletes. So their base is probably low. And so you're doing, you know, the tip of the spear work, tip of the pyramid work, and that's all you have. But, and I've seen it with triathletes, with, you know, grapplers, MMA, like, you know, they do all this high intensity work and they are having a hard time recovering. They are injured. They are, you know, kind of very sluggish within training because they just do high intensity work all the time. So there's not a chance to, you know, build those cardiac adaptations, you know, mitochondria density at the muscle. And then it becomes very exhausting on top of their, on top of their, uh, you know, the rest of their, you know, life. Uh, and it's, uh, I just think the risk reward is I don't know why you're doing 20 to 40 minutes a week of mixed high intensity work with the intermittent work is um, a bad thing. Mm. And I, I just think people like, if I'm not working you hard and I'm not working hard, the perception is I'm not getting a good workout. And that's why I'm constantly educating our athletes and our parents and young kids and young coaches on, you know, be very cautious on how you um, address cardiac adaptations, because if you're going too hard too soon, that's going to be a limiting factor as the athlete gets older. Hmm. No, that's, uh, that's perfect. <clears throat> that's perfect. Perfect answer there for for the audience to to mull over as well. But I think that's pretty much all the questions I, I have for you, Mark. If people want to find you and follow you and, and see what you're up to, where can they do that? Uh, that's a great question, James. Uh, I'll throw it in the description too when I get this up in a couple of weeks. So I think my Instagram is Mark, Mark PTC and my Twitter is uh, results underscore period. And we'll get yeah. those all linked up as well so people can find you. But uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, man. Thanks again.